Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1940, as bombs fall thick and fast on London, the royal family decides to move the two young princesses, Elizabeth and Margaret, secretly to Ireland. Lilibet, my dear, the woman on the sofa said to her older daughter, where she sat clutching her book on her knees. Are you sure you both have everything packed and ready? Miss Nash will be here very shortly. Yes, the girl replied. Everything is ready. She kept her eyes fixed on the book. Margaret looked across at her again. The atmosphere in the room had become tense. You shall have to be brave, both of you, their mother said in a lightened tone. It will only be for a little while, and then we shall all be together again. Why can't we just go to Scotland and you could come with us, Margaret asked. Because your father and I must stay here, to be with the people and share in their... In their... In their what, the younger girl demanded. Their bravery, her father said. And to show Mr Hitler we're not afraid of him and his bombs and that we shall never give in to his bullying. When the princesses are shipped across to a stately safe house with an MI5 agent as their chaperone, the locals begin to speculate about who the girls are. And when a dead body turns up, it takes every effort to uncover the truth and to stop the girls' identities from coming to light. I'm Rob Weinberg, and in this edition of Historical Fiction, I'm talking to B.W. Black, pen name of Booker Prize-winning author John Banville, about his new wartime crime novel, The Secret Guests. This is Historical Fiction. So, John, thank you very much for joining us. What inspired the scenario for The Secret Guests? Well, it's a nice little story, and I'll be as brief as I can. A friend of mine of about my own age told me, oh, this would be about 20 years ago, he was taking his elderly father for a Sunday afternoon drive in the outskirts of town. And they passed by a very imposing set of gates. And his father said, oh, that's where the princesses were during the Blitz. My friend said, what were you talking about? And he said, oh, yeah, Princess Elizabeth Margaret. They were there a couple of months in the autumn of 1940. So I said to my father, well, you know, how did he know? And he said, well, the only people that knew that the princesses were coming here were our prime minister and minister of foreign affairs and, of course, the British embassy. But nobody else was told. And they were going to stay at this, the estate of this Anglo-Irish aristocrat in Midlands of Ireland. 
And they couldn't tell the local superintendent of police because the poor fellow was a dreadful alcoholic and couldn't be trusted. So they told his next in command, who was my friend's father. So my friend asked around about this, and he's a member of a club in Dublin. There was a woman visiting who had been part of the intelligence service during the war, and he asked her about it. She said, oh, that's very interesting. I'll find out about that. So he met her again a couple of months later, and she avoided his eye and cut him dead. So I think it's true. I think they were here. And the last bit of it is that when Queen Elizabeth was in Ireland for her famous visit two years ago, it was a reconciliation visit. He disappeared for an afternoon. And I bet I know where she was. I bet he went down to that farm, to that estate where she stayed during the Blitz. Anyway, look, it's a lovely story. Why shouldn't the royal family send their children out of London during the Blitz? Tens of thousands of children were sent away, were evacuated. You know, why not the royal children? So you said your friend told you this many, many years ago. So was it something that was always in the back of your mind as a possible scenario for a novel? You know, I don't want to go on about this for too long, but I wrote a film script from it. And I pitched it to BBC Films. It's been, you know, quite a while ago. And we agreed, yeah, it's a wonderful, great story, great script. We do this. Our hands were poised over the contract when that fellow Burrow sold his story to the Daily Mail. Immediately the BBC took fright and the deal was never done. So it's been around for a long time. And then I thought, you know, I hate to waste anything. I had a good film script, so I decided I would turn it into a novel. And who knows, someday it may be made into a movie. Wouldn't that be nice? You paint a very vivid picture of the 10-year-old Princess Margaret as this rather inquisitive child, and 14-year-old Elizabeth as somewhat more aloof and impatient. Did you research the characters of the young princesses, or did you imagine that that's how they might have been based on their later adult persona that we know? Novelists don't do research. They read the odd book, you know. I would love to have met the Queen. I won't now. I'm told she has a wonderful sense of humour. A friend of mine met her on a few occasions. She invited me to a reception at Buckingham Palace. And he was standing admiring the Rembrandts. And then he looked down and there she was, because, you know, she's tiny. And she said, oh, I see you're admiring pictures. He said, yes. And, you know, they're wonderful. And they're all mine. Because, <laughs> you know, the royal family makes a big distinction between what is owned by the crown and what's owned by the family. One of the castles is owned by the family. And the rest is owned by the crown. I think, you know, look, I'm a great fan of the royal family. I think they're worth every penny. And yet in the book, you have the opportunity to reflect about the Irish attitude towards the British and vice versa after the long oppression of Ireland. You say, for example, the Irish have only agreed to take the two princesses in return for a shipment of coal, which is in short supply there. It comes across that the British really have no idea about the amount of difficulties they've caused in the past. Well, colonial powers don't worry much about colonised. They wouldn't be able to colonise it. They did. Jane Austen famously in, what is it, which is the novel, the father of the heroine has a sugar plantation in Jamaica, which would have been slaves from Africa, which would have been horrendous, and she doesn't deal with it at all. It would have been a very different novel. Can you imagine a Jane Austen novel about the slave trade? <laughs> in the book, you have the princesses being accompanied by a character called Celia Nash, who's one of the few women to be accepted into the Secret Service. And then you have Strafford, who's the only Protestant Garda detective in the Irish police in 1940. Impossibilities. Really? So they're completely fictional? Yeah, there was no, no 
Tollison would have joined the Irish police force. It certainly would not have become an inspector. And women were certainly not active agents. She might have looked like a prettier version of Vera Lynn. More than one young man had professed to spot a resemblance, except that Celia didn't have the force's sweetheart's mouthful of tombstone teeth, thank goodness. Though there was a side to her that was not only unafraid of the prospect of violence, but secretly looked forward to it. Her father was right. She was tough, and she was eager for that toughness to be tested. Given all this, it was as well she had not heard her boss, Leslie Manning, say of her over lunch with a trio of his cronies at the Travellers Club that whereas she thought of herself as a cross between Joan of Arc and the Amazon Queen, she was more like Miss Muffet, the poor thing. Yes, and sitting on that pretty tuffet of hers, one of the others said, and they had all chuckled throatily. All the same, she had a clear and concentrated awareness that everything she held dear was under the gravest threat. She had grown up in an English garden, but the garden was a jungle now, where the law, as in every jungle, was to kill or be killed. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So this is one of your crime novels, which you've written under the pen name of B.W. Black or Benjamin Black. And readers may better know your novels written under your own name, John Banville, like The Sea, which won the Booker Prize, and also The Book of Evidence. And I read that you've been described as the heir to Proust via Nabokov. So why then B.W. Black and historically set crime novels? Is it a kind of escape from the hard slog of literary works? I wish I could give you a grand, dignified answer. It was to make money. I worked in journalism for 35 years. I left journalism. I had to have something to make money because John Van books don't make any money. So I invented Benjamin Black. I invented him for a couple of reasons. I had begun to read George Simenon, whom I had not read before, and was bowled over by how good he is. And again, I had a script that I'd been commissioned to write years before by Irish television and Australia television about sending babies from Ireland abroad. And uh, I hate to waste anything. So I decided one day, you know, a light bulb went on above my head and I thought I'd turn it into a novel. And so Benjamin Black was born, fathered by Zora Simenon on the mare called Christine Falls, which was the name of the script that I'd written. So I wanted to make a living. Didn't work. I have to tell you that I've killed off Benjamin Black. So I noticed that you've now got two crime novels coming out under your own name. What was the change there? I had to go back. I hate to read my own work. It makes me physically sick. 
but I was writing a sequel to one of the Benjamin Black books and I had to go back and I thought, you know, these are not too bad. Why don't I just get rid of this Benjamin Black nonsense and claim these books as my own? So that's what I've done. It will confuse readers, but I like confused readers. Do you find it an easier process writing the crime novels than the more literary works? No, it's just different. It's a different way of working. I write very quickly, write spontaneously. Or a vandal scratches away book for two, three, four, five years. I'm working on one at the moment. I just looked at the manuscript. The first date is June 2017, and I'm about one third of the way through it. And if I live long enough, I might finish it. The Benjamin Black books I write in three or four months. It's just faster. It's just a different way of writing. I would imagine, though, because crime novels have to be quite well plotted, that it's quite a sophisticated process nevertheless. Crime writers get very annoyed at me when I say that I write them quickly. George Simenon wrote his books in 10 days. I don't hear them complaining about him. As I say, it's an entirely different way of writing. What is your process? I read that you have a place you go and write. Well, I did have before the unmentionable occurred. And I write at home in my bedroom. I wish I could show you my view from here, which is, I live in Hoth, which is about 10 miles north of Dublin. And my view from here is of the harbour of a small fishing village, the sea, a couple of islands. It's absolutely exquisite. It's too exquisite. I'm thinking of turning my desk around the other way so I don't face the view. Looking out the window becomes a distraction. Yes, of course. Nature, birds, you know, the odd person. You said that you're someone who doesn't like looking back at your old work. Is that because you feel that you're constantly challenging yourself to try and improve? I'm a hopeless perfectionist. If I read a page of my, one of my past work, all I see is where I went wrong. All I see are the faults, the flaws, the failures of nerve, the evidence of that Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock when I got sleepy and left a sentence stand that should have been revised. That's all I see. Uh, it's a torment. I remember Iris Murdoch saying, somebody asked her why she wrote so many books. And she said, well, I keep thinking the next one will exonerate me for all the previous ones. I know exactly how she felt. My wife said to me once, look, if you got it right, you'd stop writing. He said, and then what would you do? You'd go into politics and God help us all. <laughs> I think that's the same with any art form, isn't it? If you wrote the perfect symphony or painted the perfect painting, you would never do another one. That's how art functions. We poor, benighted drudges, uh, we artists, we are constantly in search of perfection. We seek it constantly. That's what keeps us going. Every now and then, once a month perhaps, I will write a sentence or a phrase or I'll think of the apt word that I need and something will ping. And you think, yeah, okay, this will keep me going. Then I get up next morning and I look at the blank page and I'm in despair again. I think, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how I did it yesterday. I just don't know how to do it. I'm going to go and cut my throat. And then I fiddle around and I, you know, I, I put down a word or a phrase or, and I'm going. And then by three or four in the afternoon, I'll be writing something that's worthwhile. And then by six o'clock, I'm exhausted. And I give up. And I get up next morning and start again. So when a book wins a major prize, like the Booker Prize, for example, are you not curious to go back and think, well, what did people see in it? When I won the Booker Prize, 
my wife said to me, she patted me on the shoulder and said, John, don't worry, you write another one. If the book wins a prize, I assume a mistake has been made or the book has been misread. In fact, that's what my wife said. She said, they must have misread it. Why did they give the prize to you? They must have misread it. They don't give prizes to works of art. And of course, I got into dreadful trouble the night that I won the Booker Prize by telling Kirsty Walker, somebody in the BBC, that I was glad to see a work of art had won the Booker Prize. Partly it was mischievousness, but partly I was, I meant it, you know, I was saying that every now and then. I'm not saying it's a successful work of art, but I set out to make a work of art, not to write a novel. And, you know, there is an argument that the novel should not be a work of art, that the novel should be, as Henry James said of Middlemarch, a new spaggy monster, because, you know, it can contain everything and it shouldn't seek perfection. That to seek for perfection in the novel is to go against the whole rationale of the novel. But what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to give to my fiction, my arty fiction, I want to give it the denseness of poetry. I don't mean doves and love and all that. Uh, I mean real poetry. John McGarren, my old friend, wonderful Irish novelist, used to say, he made a nice distinction. He said, there's verse and there's prose and then there's poetry. And poetry can happen in either. And poetry can be a, you know, a business-like business. I was a member of Seamus Heaney telling me that when <laughs> Joseph Brodsky came to the West and was writing in English and he said to Seamus one day, you know, English is so poor in rhymes. He said, give me a good rhyme for love, for instance. And Seamus said, um, shove. <laughs> <laughs> You've used history as the setting for many of your books, including the Revolutions trilogy that focused on great scientists. Do you feel a strong sense of history? Any novel that's written in the past tense is a history novel. I started to write fiction, historical fiction, in the late 70s. I had written a couple of novels set in Ireland, and I thought, what do I do now? Do I become an Irish novelist? You know, too many of them around. So I've become, you know, a European novelist of ideas. <laughs> and I was very interested in astronomy and physics. And I thought I would write a tetralogy, a quartet of books based on scientists. I'll start with Copernicus, and then I'll do Kepler, and then I'll do something about Newton, and then I'll do something about a 20th century physicist. And I started to write Copernicus, but I was about a third of the way through it before it suddenly occurred to me one day, my God, people are going to call this a historical novel. I better start reading something about the period. I better start looking at a few paintings by Holbein. I better start doing the history. Again, my dear wife, who's my great guide, said to me, John, don't become mesmerized by facts. Facts are not necessarily the truth, and they're certainly not the truth of fiction. And she's right about that. I enjoyed doing it. It was interesting. The problem was that Copernicus was such a dry stick. You know, God, he was hard to write about. I loved writing about Kepler, who was so wonderful. Kepler reminded me of myself, you know, a demented little man running around seeking perfection, seeking a system. And then when I got to the fourth book that was supposed to be about Einstein, Heisenberg, Bohr, one of those, I lost my nerve. I might write it someday. But I was not interested in history. You know, there's no such thing as history. It's just people wore different clothes and spoke a different language and were shorter than we are. I remember going to my good friend, Nigel Hawthorne, Sir Humphrey, you know. I went to his house in the country. It was a beautiful, beautiful house. 
which was built in Shakespeare's time. And even I had to duck my head, and I'm tiny, I had to duck my head going through doorways. And Isaac was a big man. How he managed, I don't know. You know, people were smaller. People used different terms. It's extraordinary for me to think that I was writing two books, in fact, set in a period when there were no potatoes in Europe. And I'm Irish. The notion of life without a potato is inconceivable. So there were those differences. But otherwise, people do not change. I'm reading Gilgamesh at the moment, which is what, four, six thousand years old? The same obsessions, the same fears, the same desires. People don't change. Do you have other stories lined up set in wartime Ireland or around that period? Well, I have two unpublished, to be published novels coming out. One is set in Ireland in the 50s. And it has St. John Strafford is in it as well. I've had to do a bit of trickery with his age. So that's coming out in October. Then I have another one which is set in Dublin, but mostly in Spain, in San Sebastian. Because I went to San Sebastian and fell in love with it. thought I'd have to set a book here. So I brought Quirk down there with his wife, and Strafford is in there as well. This is endless fun. Writing the books is not easy, but it's fun. I like doing it. <laughs> I'll keep doing it till I drop. There's a lovely anecdote of Henry James. When he was dying, he was in a coma. He was on his deathbed. His hand was still moving across the sheet. He was still writing. I hope to be like that. Well, I'm just about to go. The hand will still be writing. And you know what? I have written the perfect sentence. The problem is nobody will ever read it. John Banville, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. Historical Fiction.